What is this you say? Free free bird, like as in flying bird? That's funny. I'll check that one out. Or I say I I also say, Oh, I did oh my god, I did it already. I did it twice in the first set. <laughs> I also twice. did Slayer, me and Bob and Biggie, Brown Eye Girl, and every Pearl Jam song ever written. It was the most it was the greatest set ever and you missed and it. You, you gotta get it, it earlier. Yeah. It could be the first song and I still say it. Like first song. I'm like, I did it last set. <laughs> I wa- I'm walking in with my guitar and people are going free bird I, go, I just played it last day Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends and musicians get together to discuss an album from Robert Dimery's list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So each week, we pick an album at random from that list. We listen to it, we analyze it, we do some deep dives, and give you, dear listener, our opinions on whether or not this album deserves to be on the list. At the end of the episode, we'll all vote and pick next week's albums. And if you haven't heard this week's album, don't worry. We're going to be dropping in plenty of clips along the way. So this week, we've been listening to Aretha Franklin's 1967 album titled I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. And before we get into the music, I first want to dive into our listener mailbag. Now, our co-host Rob usually reads these, but he sent me the email credentials last week So let's open up the bag and see what we got. So listener Brett from Addison, Texas writes in, Ever since Loretta Lynn died, I've been re-listening to a lot of her old albums, and I stumbled upon your episode about her. I started listening to her back in 2004 when she sang with Jack White, and I still think that she's one of the all-time greats. Now, one of y'all compared her to Ice Cube, which had me rolling. (laughs) Who compared that? (laughs) Any plans on reviewing Conway Twitty? Well, thank you, Brett. Uh, I don't know if Conway Twitty is on the list. We'll have to dig into that. Maybe he can be on the, uh, if we do another glaring emissions. Right, right. The, I, uh... I think the Ice Cube reference, Tom had compared or was saying that Loretta Lynn's as big of a gangster as NWA. So I think that might be what uh, Brett was talking about there as like a five foot mother of six. That she, <laughs> <laughs> she had a lot more street cred than those guys. But <laughs> That's a, a fairly timely um, piece of mail because I do feel like the album we're listening to today, I do feel like Aretha Franklin and Loretta Lynn, despite being like polar opposites musically, have some similarities that way. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll get into those. Yeah. Next up, we've got a letter here from Cheryl from Fredericksburg, Virginia. So Cheryl writes in and says, my husband listens to your podcast, which means I often hear it in the background around the house. He's a huge weather report fan, and I don't understand how anyone can listen to that music. We've gotten into plenty of arguments about how terrible and boring it is. I'd rather have silence than whatever it is they do. (laughs) I wanted to write in and tell you that I enjoyed overhearing your podcast about the album way more than any actual weather report album. Boosh from Cheryl. Take that. Spite is a powerful motivator. (laughs) Like that is a woman who really doesn't like weather report. I wonder if she'd actually rather listen to like an actual weather report than (laughs) (laughs) just turn on the weather channel as they go through what that that computerized voice that tells you what your weather is going to (laughs) be. I just can't wait for Cheryl's husband to hear this and, and restart the fight about weather report. 
All right. Well, anyway, Brad and Cheryl, thank you for the email. And don't forget that if you're enjoying the show, go ahead and subscribe or write a review on your favorite podcasting platform or better yet, tell a friend. Don't forget that you can always send us an email at 1001 Album Complaints and let us know what we got right and what we got wrong. So as I mentioned, this week we're diving into the world of Southern Soul with the Queen of Soul herself, Aretha Franklin. So I want to get right into the music and then we'll come back with some introductions, our special guest for the week, as well as our tweet length reviews. So here's the first track off this album, a little known sleeper tune called Respect. All right, so that was just in case you're an alien and have never heard music before, recorded music. Have you guys ever seen those? Th- there's this YouTube channel where they, they go to tribal people and give them like Western foods, like people from <laughs> Afghanistan and Mongolia, like they'll give them like angel food cake or a cheesecake and they have them like react to it. I'm pretty sure if you played this song in front of them, they'd be like, oh yeah, it's Aretha. We, we, we know that. <laughs> yeah. But that Big Mac was delicious. <laughs> All right, so let's let's throw things around the room here to our friends in the studio for those uh, quick tweet length reviews. Let's throw it over to Alan first. So I was uh, doing a little bit of research for this album, and I came across this old sort of original Rolling Stone review, which, among other things, claimed of this album, the sidemen weren't very good, the drums weren't hard enough, the guitar was weak, and the production lacked polish. As if I couldn't like this album anymore... Hearing that, just put it over the top for me. <laughs> Phil. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this This is this is classic, you know, must listen to. I think you sort of took the words out of my mouth, right? Like, this is what does music sound like printed on a gold plate and blasted into space sort of, <laughs> yeah. you know, sort of stuff, right? Yes. Um, yeah, it's like a generational talent tracks excellently with excellent players <laughs> you know like wait, it's, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's who great. knew you take a uh, great singer and great players right <laughs> magic formula all right so we do have a, a special guest i mentioned this week her name is laura lee tarakis laura lee has been a working musician for the last 20 years she's the lead singer and front woman of the band laura lee and trip fabulous she also plays guitar and piano she writes music which you can find here on spotify or wherever you're listening And she plays something like 200 shows a year at clubs and venues between New York and Virginia. She's one of the hardest working musicians I've ever had the pleasure to play with, as well as just overall an amazing person. So, Laura Lee, welcome. Thanks, Adam. The Twitter feed is yours. Okay. Uh, First, are we going to talk about how I know each other? Oh, yeah. Uh, I I guess (laughs) it was, what, two years that I played with you guys? Back in 2004 or something? Yeah. The best two years of the band. 
Oh, <laughs> Adam used to be my keyboard player. Yeah, man. It was a Checks in the mail. Blast. Yeah. It was so wonderful. The girls loved him. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason I was there. Adam's just the eye candy, <laughs> which is saying, which is a sad state of affairs. <laughs> well, at least generally on this podcast with the rest of us, that's compared to us. Oh, debatable. He was the eye candy. <laughs> um, okay, so my my Aretha tweet. So she is legit the the only woman that ever made me. I listened to her voice, and I said, I, "I'm just going to quit singing. Why do I? Why am I a singer? I have no business in this business." <laughs> What am I doing? That's everything. And Adam, and I, you know, I hate to correct you because it shows my age, but I've been doing this for 27 years. 27 years. Damn. That's a whole yeah, lot of 26 games. without a 26 without a day job. I now that's something to hang your hat on. So you're probably the most mentally well-adjusted. of. Uh, oh <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely. Like, uh, you know, everyone becomes a musician because they're emotionally healthy. Right. right? <laughs> I just, I made it my job to be the center of attention because I'm uh, I'm all good. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> well, welcome. We're uh, really happy to have you. Thanks. Happy to be here. All right. So this is Adam, and my review is this week's album contains the song that Rolling Stone, aside from their their terrible review of the album itself back in the 60s, Rolling Stone has named the number one greatest song of all time is on this album. So I can't imagine I'll have a lot of complaints. I mean, I'll try my best. You know what? Uh, the album title's too long. There. Okay, that's about all I'll be able to come up with for complaints on on this album. But welcome, everyone. So, so here we go. Let's dive into this a bit. So we often pose the question, how did Robert Dimery come up with a specific album to throw on this list, especially when the artist has any more than 10 albums in their catalog? Aretha's got something like 40 uh, but I can see why Dimery chose this, uh, mainly because it's kind of this pivotal album in her career that we'll see as we dive into it. So I'll also have to pat myself on the back here. I did actually read a book for this week's episode called Respect, The Life of Aretha Franklin by David Ritz. Great interviewer. He interviewed her siblings and a ton of R&B stars from back in the day, from Ray Charles to Eartha Kitts to Etta James to Bill Withers. And uh, my big asterisk there on that reading a book, I read enough of it to get me up to this album, which was about <laughs> one fifth. So <laughs> I don't know Rob, Rob would be disappointed. He would. Yeah. Rob burns through books like like nobody's business. It's funny. Whenever I hear the word respect in this context, I can only think of the uh, do you all remember the Ali G show at all? <laughs> the <course>. respect. <laughs> it's, it's for some reason that that word has been co-opted for me, but <laughs> I always think about the Eddie Murphy when he's like, R-S-E-T-T-T, when he's doing his dad. Much better reference. All right. So this album was released on March 10th of 1967. And just to get into a little bit of the history, Aretha famously comes from Detroit, Michigan. Detroit was not known to be a very musical or artistic town back in the 40s, but during the 40s and 50s, there was this great migration of Southern blacks looking to move out of the South, move up the economic ladder into prosperity. So a lot of those Southern blues and gospel traditions were essentially transplanted during the 40s and 50s. So Aretha was born in Memphis in 1942, the daughter of Barbara Vernice Franklin, who was a gospel singer and pianist, and a very famous Detroit preacher named C.L., which stands for Clarence LaVon Franklin. 
C.L. Franklin was really involved in the civil rights movement, but also very connected in the gospel and blues scene in Detroit. And so Aretha, as a child, uh, was just a savant. Uh, her, her siblings recall how easily she picked up piano. She just had something special about the way she sang. And, and her father, who was known to have these late night parties in Detroit where Art Tatum would show up, Ella Fitzgerald and Duke Ellington would show up. They remember her father waking her up to come downstairs and play piano and sing for Nat King Cole. So this is the world that she's swimming in as a child. So she learned to play piano by ear from a very early age. Uh, I'm just going to be dropping names all over the place. Smokey Robinson was friends with Aretha's older brother, Cecil, and noted as they were hanging out in the neighborhood just how talented she was. Aretha was the only one of the siblings, though, who went with her father on the road in his traveling ministry. Again, we talk about C.L. Franklin being kind of a raucous gospel preacher. Since this is a rock and roll music podcast, we have to dive into the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. In this book, they have a story that Ray Charles was talking about, how C.L. Franklin would throw the best orgies. We're talking about a preacher <laughs> Throwing the best orgies. Ray Charles said, when it came to pure sex, they were wilder than me. And that's saying something. The cats like it with the cats. The chicks liked it with the chicks. And no one minded mixing it up. I got a kick out of seeing how God's people were going for it hard and heavy every which way. Ray Charles is blind, right? (laughs) Yes. Which Double checking there. I think I finally found Jesus. (laughs) Which which just makes me think of somebody whispering in Ray Charles' ears, what's going on? Like the scene unfolding. Now, all that sex, drugs, and rock and roll sadly doves into, uh, dovetails into what I'm, I'm going to call our, our special victims unit moment, which is kind of a sad thing that, that we see in the history of music here. We, we talked about Loretta Lynn. She was very early. I think she got married at 13. We saw that Elvis got married to, a, I, I think she was 14 or something like that. But this one may be the worst. So Aretha's father, C.L. Franklin, quote unquote, had a child with a 12-year-old in 1940. The books and the literature say had a child, uh, but he essentially raped a 12-year-old and she had his baby. Uh, so this is what Aretha is growing up in. So she, she's she got some emotional baggage that she carries with her throughout her life. That's a bad scene. That's, yeah. And, and, and this is, so this is like mid-50s. Is she like living on the road? So, well? so her, her dad, you know, impregnated the 12 year old in 1940 so this is before aretha was born but uh it kind of sets the tone for things that she'll find out later in life about her father her siblings said that she never opened up about this stuff and that the only place she ever really released it was when she sang which again kind of makes sense so we flash forward to 1955 aretha started traveling with her father's gospel act Mm -hmm. aretha also has a child two months before her 13th birthday. So again, a very, a very rough upbringing of being on the road and being exposed to, to this type of stuff. She made it work. Uh, her, her grandmother ultimately took care of the, the children that she would have as, as she, as she worked her way up the ranks. So continuing here with, with some of the background, right? So Aretha turns 19 and she gets married to a guy named Ted white, who's 30 years old. He's essentially a pimp from Detroit, but becomes her manager. So Ted White and Aretha Franklin are kind of 
these these polar opposites, the the oil and the water, who never really mix, but but they make it work. It's a lot of speculation that Ted White really just used her for money, kind of exploited her just to get her out there because that was his uh, that was his personality. But she also needed somebody to get her out there. Well, is it true that I don't know if you came across this at all in your research that he also wrote some of the lyrics to some of her songs, particularly I, I, the one that comes to mind specifically is like the Dr. Feel Good, where it's like, oh, this guy's great. He satisfies me in every way. And it's like, did you just write those lyrics and give those to her? Yeah, that's it's really odd here. Here, sweetheart, <laughs> sing this song at about how big my package is. You know, like, it's really. But it's going to be a gospel song. Right? But it's going to be about <laughs> how awesome I am in bed. Yeah. There's also another song that we're going to get into on the focus list where one of Ted White's uh, he had a stable of writers back in Detroit who wrote a song for Aretha. And it's almost as if this friend saw the terrible relationship that Aretha was in and then wrote about how she probably felt. It's, it's, really, it's really interesting that uh, she's singing these songs that's kind of talking about her relationship. All right. So Aretha finally kind of hits it and she gets a record deal with Columbia. Columbia Records, where she stayed between 1960 and 1967, where she published seven albums. The problem is, though, she could never really find her voice. She was always kind of on the precipice of fame, but it never really hit. Either she and her manager, Ted White, had disagreements with how Columbia was promoting her. She wanted to do standards. Columbia wanted her to do other stuff. She wanted to do all blues. It was kind of a mishmash. She never really was able to find her voice. And even in 1964, she found herself almost trying to compete with with Barbara Streisand, covering Streisand tunes, trying to get that hit, trying to get that hit. One of the things I got from the book is that all she wanted was hits. There came a point where she didn't really even care about the material. She just wanted hits. So her contract with Columbia runs out and there's this guy named Jerry Wexler who's working for Atlantic Records. Now Atlantic at this time is is honestly what they're calling a mom and pop shop who is very focused on gospel and soul. And in interviews Etta James was talking about uh, Jerry Wexler and said was saying that Columbia didn't have success with Aretha because Columbia didn't know how to reach black listeners. People would later say that that Columbia executives lived in these ivory towers. They were all college professors. But Wexler noted that if you wanted to have black hits, you had to understand the black streets and work those streets and work those DJs to get airplay on the black stations. So Aretha's Columbia stuff wasn't black enough for blacks, but was too black for whites. So Columbia wasn't able to pull off that crossover thing that Aretha wanted. Aretha wanted to hit on the R&B charts and then take off into the pop And this charts. like this even like this kind of speaks to what we we spoke to recently with the Michael Jack with Thriller, right? And how like Thriller was able to sort of break down these artificial barriers around like what was considered black and white music at the time, right? And things were sort right. of charted different, thought about different, marketed differently, right? Totally. It wasn't just music, right? Right, right. And and this guy, Jerry Wexler, really understood how that happened, how you work a hit through the different the different avenues and how to promote and how to Yeah, like the different markets. Out. Like he knew how to bring the product to market. There were different rules to different marketplaces. Yeah. Bizarre. Seems bizarre. 
Well, especially now when it's like it's all on the internet and it's just like yeah. this stuff and just makes right. itself, right? Like <laughs> So as Aretha's contract was running out, her producer at Columbia was a guy named Clyde Otis. Columbia saw the writing on the wall and in the last year or two of her contract realized they weren't going to get any hits and basically just wanted volume. They just wanted the rights to songs. They were trying to recoup her initial contract amount by basically just getting royalties, have her pump out 10 albums, a hundred songs, whatever it is. We just want volume. Aretha finished up her contract, enter this guy, Jerry Wexler. So Jerry Wexler had been trying to get in touch with Aretha, knowing that her contract ended. He found himself in Muscle Shoals. So he was working for Atlantic Records and he was down there with these blues-minded white musicians uh, who were actually called The Wrecking Crew. There's a documentary on, I think, Amazon or Netflix called yeah, The Wrecking Crew. Yeah, it's like Fame that, Studios, right? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. Looks it, like, it kind of looks like a, like a mattress warehouse or like a carpet, right. you know, a carpet warehouse distributor. It is not, not sexy at all. I mean, all. honestly... No music studio I've ever been in looks sexy from the outside. Like So in Fame Studios, uh, Wexler was, was really happy with the way they were making these arrangements. So at Columbia, a lot of your bigger, your bigger studios, you had these professional mus- musicians who were writing charts, making arrangements. The talent would come in and they would give these charts to the musicians and it was all laid out ahead of time. The guys at Fame Studios were doing it differently. They had a rough idea of the song and they would just jam. So it was a much more organic feel, a lot more, I'll say sloppy, but that's mm-hmm. what made, that's what makes it beautiful. Uh, Wexler noted that they looked like hillbillies, but they were the secret geniuses of a good groove of, of this Southern soul movement. It is funny. They There is a look about those guys, like especially compared to, you know, I don't know when Motown was in relation to this like time wise, but you know, I feel like the Motown guys like looked the part to an extent. And then you see these like muscle shoals guys that are, uh, definitely look like they're ready to cut the next like Leonard Skinner. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is where all that good stuff was done. Yeah. If you have a chance, go look at that. It's called the wrecking crew. I think there's actually two, two documentaries out there. So Wexler ultimately winds up convincing Aretha to join him. He sells this Muscle Shoals concept that these guys are really down there and it vibed with Aretha because she was not a trained musician. She played by ear. She played by feel. She couldn't read sheet music. So I think that kind of perked her ears when she heard that there was a group of people making slamming music, uh, you know, like turn on the radio and there's a, a Wilson Pickett hit and that was done at Muscle Shoals. So I think that kind of helped push her over to Jerry Wexler. She gets signed with Atlantic. They go down to Muscle Shoals to start recording this album. Again, this is the same studio where Percy Sledge cut When a Man Loves a Woman. Uh, so, right, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of electricity around this studio. Now, the owner of the studio, this guy named Rick Hall, was known for being overbearing. And Aretha's husband, Ted, already wasn't thrilled you know, this guy had a reputation for just being a pain in the ass. So he was a little hesitant. So they were set to begin recording at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals at the end of January 67. Aretha had done a lot of rough arrangements of a bunch of these songs. So she brought in the, the rough cuts and, and the rough ideas. They give it to the wrecking crew. And on day one, magic happens. They're all in the studio. They're freaking out because they started recording I Have Never Loved a Man, which is the title 
track off this album. And the musicians are giddy. After each take, they're running into the studio like little kids, super excited. Aretha goes into the booth and they're all freaking the hell out because they realize they've got something special here. So day one done. They got I Have Never Loved a Man in the bag. They managed to get that song done. And then they started a couple other bass tracks of some of the other songs. They're all celebrating. Some booze gets involved. And a couple... People tell it some some different ways, but somebody said that maybe the, the one of the horn players made a pass at Aretha, or somebody said something racist. But essentially, Ted White ends up in a fist fight with the owner of Fame uh, Fame Studio. So everything goes to hell. Ted and Aretha get on a plane and head back to New York. So now Jerry Wexler's freaking the hell out because he knows he has lightning in a bottle. He's got this magic thing, but Aretha just left. And everything's up up in the air. So put yourself in his shoes, okay? You're the you're the producer. You know you have a hit on your hands, and your talent just left, and you have nothing. And you just got punched in the face by and you just some got a piece of work. <laughs> Man, this guy sounds like a real asshole. <laughs> so Wexler takes the one finished song, puts it on acetate, and sends it all over the country. Not hedging his bet, but maybe calling Aretha's bluff. So he sends it out to all these R and B markets. The song is a super hit. So like three days later, everyone's requesting it. The phone lines are lighting up. And I think five days later, Aretha calls and says, okay, let's, let's, let's give it another shot. Wait, so, so they, they released to, it as a, it was released as a single. Well, initially? here's, here's the problem. Everyone wanted the song, but they only had one song and that's not enough for a single 45. You need two songs. Right, so, right, okay. so they were just sending out these one sided 45s. <laughs> Right? To like record stations, right? Rather, uh, Atlantic started freaking out because everyone was asking for this and they didn't have anything to sell. So Aretha comes back to New York. They bring the Muscle Shoal guys back up to a studio in New York. So they cut the song Do Right Woman, Do Right Man and slam that on the other side of this 45. Aretha has her first hit. They did at Atlantic... In two weeks, what Columbia couldn't do in 10 years, Aretha is now a star. So, so Do Right Woman, Do Right Man is tracked in New York. And that's almost like just so they have something to put on the other side of the record, right? Like They had started tracking it in Muscle Shoals. They came gotcha. up finished and, and finished it off as quickly as possible. Again, just to get something out the door to start making money. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I think it's it's uh, it's always funny hearing not funny, but just gross like mismanagement or like miscasting <laughs> yeah, of talent. Yeah, it's like you had this person in your stable, you know, and got 10 albums or nine albums or whatever it was, <laughs> and you couldn't capitalize on it. It's just like, man, that's kind of pathetic. So it went straight to the top of the that first single, which had I Never Loved. And the Do Right Woman, Do Right Man straight to the top of the R&B charts, then straight to the top of the pop charts where it competed with Penny Lane by the Beatles, the Turtles, so happy together. Uh, so, so she had her crossover hit. The, and the next single they released were Respect and Dr. Feel Good. So her trajectory just went through the roof after that, after that second single dropped there. No, it's, I think the history is good because like I... The, a lot of, you know, these, these artists are obviously 
famous and household names, but you know, I didn't know a lot of that sort of backstory. Yeah. I don't know anything about Aretha Franklin, like for real. There's also a, a bunch of movies and documentaries about Aretha that I should probably get into and watch at, uh, at some point. I didn't really know any of these more tragic tragic is not the right word, but like definitely difficult elements of our life. I think tragic is fair. Right. A lot of strife, a lot of adversity. Yeah, like I didn't know any but of that. That always makes for a good musician though. Like, it, you know what I mean? Like, like it, it gives you something to write about and not only something to write about if you're not even writing your own lyrics, like it gives you that passion. It gives you, it makes you feel something. To it makes you from. feel what you're creating more than if you just, if somebody wrote a sad song for you and you were really sad about anything, you'd just be like, la 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 sad song. But you know, <laughs> if, if somebody wrote a sad song for you, or if you wrote your own sad lyrics and you're just like, just really oh. give it, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Like it, it almost like, it's like, you know, therapeutic to get that out. And sometimes, especially in that day and age, I don't know if Aretha would have had, I had, had access to like, you know, a regular therapist or somebody <laughs> to talk to, to like get that, you know what I mean? Like to get that all out. And, uh, you know, you, you, you do that through, through music. You do that through your art. I'm going to guess at like 13 or 14, she probably did. <laughs> well, she- she was notably silent on all of this. She said something like pain is a very personal thing or. Be- and Adam, she- as you had said, she, her siblings noted that she didn't ever speak of it, you know? Right. So right. And, and you know. even the, the guy who, who wrote uh, the, the book that I read Ritz, I think was, was the last name. He met with her and said, I want to write your biography. And she's like, yeah, this sounds great. And then he was like, but I actually want to like get the real story. And he was, she was like, well, like uh. wouldn't open up at all. It might've been her autobiography. She spent less than one page writing about the death of her mother, which according to her siblings was one of the most devastating moments of her entire life. Like it could have taken up an entire book and she just kind of glossed over it. So uh, again, her, her siblings also say that that's, you know, you can see in her singing, that's where she, she released it. Yeah. That's her, that's her pain there. You know, like you, everybody's born with vocal cords, but not everybody can throw all that onto them and make them really do something. Right. Right. Yeah. And to your point earlier, like you can tell when somebody is kind of mailing it in vocally or singing for reasons other than that's just what they feel compelled to do. Yeah. You know, you can feel it when they feel it, you know, like those songs resonate with, with other people. Cause it reaches the pain reaches out and like grabs you too. You know, you're like, Oh, I feel that. I feel that. Totally. This album also made me appreciate how nuanced her voice can be. I mean, truthfully, I, I think I had listened to, you know, the big hits, you sure. know, maybe I knew three Aretha tunes. I think from like a sort of like a from both an engineering standpoint and just like the human interest instrument standpoint, like there are some songs on this that are just superb, right? Like this has the wonderful confluence of, you know, sort of like a generational female talent, right? And her recording sort of with, peak old world technology. And I don't mean that in a good way or a bad way. I just mean like that has a sound, right? And right after 1967, 1969, like all of this stuff would move over to Transformers, right? Everything would start sounding like rumors, right? Like not long after that. 
<laughs> right? And I don't totally, mean that in a bad yeah. way. I'm just saying everything starts out like just bro, different. Yeah, it's just different. Yeah. And like there are just times when like it's like she knows how to work the microphone just right. And there's like, it's distorting. I was just going to mention the distorting. Yeah. But it's like distorting, like a guitar player knows how to make the amp break up. Right. And it's like, God, yeah. and you know, that's happening live too. You know, mm-hmm. like, the, oh, this is my other thing. And this is something that somebody else clued me on, but I'd, be, I'd just be curious to talk about it for the rest. This piano is out of tune. <laughs> yes, it is. I can feel it in my teeth. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, Laura Lee, I love you because that's. <laughs> you know what I mean, Adam? That's where I feel out of tune stuff in my teeth. Oh my God! I know it's like it's like under. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody ever understood that the way. And my daughter is the only other human on the planet that understands the feeling the out of tune in your teeth. I've never felt that. Yeah, she's like, why is it? Is it like a pain? It's a. It's not a pain. It's almost like you can hear it in your tooth. Like a, it's a resonance. It's a weird. Day. Mm, yeah. It's that. like a vibration in your tooth. Yeah. Like when you, well, you guys know when you. It's a drill of a dentist. When you tune up an instrument, you get the whoa, 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 yeah, whoa, yeah, whoa, yeah. whoa. When things are out, not only can you hear it, but it's this weird. Uh, it's like it hits your soul. It's maybe it's like a weird pressure. Absolutely. Like, you know, like I feel it. Stuff. But yeah, I, but. I think some of the, these older recordings in general, and the stuff from the 60s, uh, because they don't have auto-tune, right? Like at all, anywhere. They don't even have strobe tuners, right? Although Adam right. would say that's not true, right? Like right. I think you looked this up, but it doesn't matter. Like it creates this broader range of acceptance for your ear. Like that out-of-tune piano, there might be times where it's like, uh, you know, but it also gives you a little breathing room on other notes. It creates like a slightly wider like space for error, right? As the listener. And it just creates this beautiful like effect, right? Because like you can listen in a slightly more relaxed way, right? Whereas like everything now, modern music I feel is just, it's so tight. It's like the tighter you have to get, the more of a technician you have to become. And that's not to say she's not a technician, right? That'd be a ridiculous statement, but in a different way, it's like, she's also like, like a pitcher almost. It's like, she not only can throw strikes, but she has this way of, and the band are like, they're expanding the strike zone as well. And it's cool. There's just an organic quality to it. What's funny is I didn't even notice the attitude in piano and, you know, maybe I'm not listening closely <laughs> enough, but like, I definitely noticed the organic nature of it, that it sounds like they're, clearly like playing live. Some of these are probably like, I wouldn't be surprised if their first take um, kind of one take wonders. And, but also reminds me of what Tom always brings up, which is that idea of like the, the human ear likes drums that are not done by a drum machine because they can detect those imperfections and it feels real. Like, I wonder if there's some mm-hmm. of that, sure. you know, kind of going on too. I think Alan, what you were saying about the organic, it, there's something about that. Th- think of the, Amy Winehouse album yeah, and the effort, the effort that these modern producers went through to make it sound like this. And these guys weren't trying to make it sound like this. This was just the way it sounded. I know that was just a bunch of words, word salad there, but it's just fascinating. And probably a reason why these kind of tunes and this sound hung on for so long. Yeah. There's just, it's like, there's something it's like something in the water you know it's just it's just yeah it's there 
All right, you guys ready to, to dive into some tunes here? We're going to get into our focus list. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. All right, so uh, we're going to dive into our, our focus list here. This first tune that we're going to listen to is called I Never Loved a Man. All right, there you go. So that's I Never Loved a Man. Yeah, I'm going to say it's in 9-8. I think it's 9-8. <laughs> I, just, I just nerded up the room. I just nerded up the room. I know. I just nerded up the room so quick. I'm sorry. I'm- oh, no, you're in the right place. Although I need to go back to school now. It's one of those ambiguous, like, three vibes sort of situations, right? Yeah. Like- well, I had read that they, and this kind of makes sense, that it took them a while to figure out what they wanted the feel to be. Because it's down tempo is probably the wrong word for this because I don't know what the BPM actually comes out to, but it feels really plotting and slow, like in a good way. And so I think they it took them a while to kind of lock in to what the groove was going to be for this song. Um, but I think that I mean, the rhythm is great. I think it's really subtle, but the bass really drive. I think the bass drives the song in a lot of ways. Like it's it's not it's like, like a, hidden behind the keyboard, but it it's cool. Is. Right? It's like, like kind of lurking around mm-hmm. in the background a little bit. And I, I do think it's sort of a nice um, kind of, I guess, contrast to what you would hear in like Motown with like James Jamerson, who was very busy and very melodic, whereas this is more like. You know, I'll play a fill here and there, but it's really just kind of bouncing the song along. Like, the, yeah, I mean, it's a great song. This is this is actually my favorite example on the record of like the microphone breaking up and like the wall of sound horns and and the way like the out of tune piano. And I I'm use out of tune loosely, like you know, it's it's just not like you know, it's not ready for an orchestra, right? Right. Alan, you said plotting. I think that right. You said uh, uh, plotting along. I think that is a great description because it almost feels too slow, but it still works. It, it feels so, like everyone's trying to catch up a little bit, yeah, or, or like or, or trying to like hold themselves back, you know. Well, and it's like the power builds as the tempo does not change, right? Like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, that's like cool. It, it becomes there's a weird like tension that builds. So this is the song that was written by Ronnie Shannon, who was a friend of Ted White's back in Detroit. And this is where I was thinking, like, he's back in Detroit watching Ted be a total piece of shit to Aretha. And then he writes this song knowing it's going to be sung by Aretha because there's lines in here like, I'd leave you if I could. The way you treat me is a shame. You know, like, yeah, like that's general blues material. But man, that hits hard for this guy, Ted White, Ted White, who was very, very brutal. There are stories about him, you know, pushing her around and smacking her around in the studio. And, and well, I guess also, yeah. I mean, if you're Ronnie Shannon and you're like, all right, let's see, like, what am I going to draw from for material? You're like, you know, 
I bet you she'll be able to identify with this song. Right. Right. She'll be able to latch on and give it some yeah. emotion. Well, yeah. and she definitely does. Like this is, I actually wrote down in my notes when your voice is a weapon, it, like in a good yeah. way, because <laughs> Dude, when she hits that, awesome. the first never, or even one of them in the, in the second chorus, like I was like, Oh shit. Like it like snapped me out of whatever I was doing because it is just like raw power. But to your point earlier, Phil, it's she's also very controlled. It, so it's not just like I'm screaming and that's where my sweet spot is. It's like, no, I can kind of dial back and kind of throttle up or down where I need to. And it's just I mean, it's just totally a singular voice. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because at the one minute and 50 mark, she she says the the line about loved a man and it's kind of like this breathy whispery thing mm-hmm. oh my god yeah, it's like a two-part so harmony sexy it's like just perfect she's just fantastic i mean the bridge <laughs> is super tasty in this song as well uh yeah, well, well, well done. Aside from this being the title of the album again, which I think doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Uh, <laughs> She's actually playing piano in this, right? Or in a lot of songs on the album. Yeah, that's right. She she played she played the acoustic piano in this, right? Right, because there's also an organ. Not I think the, maybe yeah, not the worlds are at the beginning. Right, yeah, worlds are roads. I'm not sure which. I, I will admit, and maybe it's because I've seen most of her most of the performances I've seen are more like later in her career where she's more of like the front where she's kind of out walking around and, and strutting around. But I didn't realize that she played so much piano like back in the day, you know, when, when, when I saw that she had been all over this album on piano it was, uh, yeah, it was a surprise to me. All right. So we're going to jump next into uh, the next song on our focus list, which is respect. But first I want to play for you. The original version, yes, I said it, this is a cover. The original version was by Otis Redding. That intro sucks. <laughs> well, uh, the snare hits are kind of badass. Oh, you mean once the intro's over? Yeah. <laughs> it. I mean, he. So Aretha had been. I'm not trying to diss Otis Redding here, but, uh, but you know, it's. I mean, <laughs> Aretha was doing her version of the song before they went into the studio for something like a year or two live. This was one of like her big songs that she would come out with. So here, I'll, I'll now drop in a little bit of Aretha's version, which we're all super familiar with. Yeah. 
Yeah, I get it. Why they named it the greatest song of all time. I mean, <laughs> they also took freaking. that crappy intro and just sort of moved some pieces around much better, much better like that. I think they yes. made it about half as long. Yep. <laughs> I, just get right to the good part, right? <laughs> I, I feel like there's almost nothing I can add to a song like this that hasn't been said already. So um, I do have some notes, but I came across and maybe one of y'all did too that this song was actually is actually credited as coming up with the word props, right? Because when she says to give me my, <laughs> give me propers, my propers, propers, people as- okay. associate that. I also didn't know after the R-E-S-P-E-C-T. I always thought it said take out the PCT or something, but she's saying something. Let's ab- all do PCP. <laughs> what? Damn. Take care TCB. Also coining the, well, possibly the, the taking care of business kind of thing. So I thought that was cool. I never know what it said there. So I didn't that? either until this week. Clearly this is her song. Like this is one of those situations where you, you can write a song, but it's yeah. once, once someone takes it. And I think he even said, there's a quote that's attributed to him where he's like, Oh, Aretha, that's the girl that done. Oh, that's a little girl that done took my song. <laughs> yes. But saying it, you know, affectionately, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, what can you say? Yeah, Jerry Wexler, the, the producer, uh, noted that per- he personally played it for Otis Redding, and Otis Redding said, the girl has taken that song from me. It no longer belongs to me. <laughs> All right, well. <laughs> well, I mean, at least he you know, recognized that it was right. over, you know? <laughs> but what I think was cool, too, is like, so obviously she changed it stylistically. Like, I I think she kind of rearranged parts of it and, and added the, you know, RASBT part. But I think w- when you listen to the Otis Redding version, it seems a lot more sort of just like milk toast, like ho-hum, like eh, kind of standard like blues fare, like my woman don't give me respect. And she right. kind of turned it into this like anthem of kind of yes. women's rights. And I I don't know the that- Civil rights movement. Yeah, like all of that. Yeah. And I don't think any of that was like present in- the original version. And so I think to not only change like the kind of arrangement or add a few pieces here to, to transform it into this, you know, anthemic sort of thing, I, I think is, it's just really cool. It still holds up. This does not have sweet home Alabama syndrome for me, which you would think, I mean, it's on the level granted. I've never sang respect, but I've heard it probably as much as I've heard Sweet Home Alabama. But this song still is amazing. I, you know, it's not one of the ones where I just immediately hit next when I hear that amazing intro that you, the world recognizes it from the first one second. Well, it's also so, you know, we always talk about like song length and some songs are too long or whatever. This song is two and a half minutes and it packs so oh much. God. Like it is dense and they utilize yeah. like every inch of real estate in that time and so there's just no filler it's just all all meat i was yeah man something else that really does it for me you know i I had never really listened to this song sort of let's try to say something intelligent about it must be a new experience (laughs) and this tambourine player holds it down 
And I mean it. This is <laughs> fucking hard. It is hard to stay behind the beat for two minutes and 30 seconds like this. It's, On a tambourine. It's the only, like, yeah. a tambourine can ruin the groove so easy. Like, so easy, right? Like, it's, I, I was at a concert once and there was somebody in the crowd with a tambourine. Oh, oh that was like... Holy shit, man. Like You'll ruin the concert. I'm at a concert every night and someone in the crowd has a tambourine. <laughs> Why? Oh, they just man. bring them. Have you ever have you ever felt like that you should like slay them like a stand-up comedian would slay them? Ooh. You should consider I that. <laughs> I do. You gotta get yeah, interactive performance. <laughs> that would be Yeah. Fun. You gotta go see Laura Lee. She's <laughs> not a- an <laughs> She's an insult. Not in a mean now. way. I I usually just say, hey, you know, that's that's really helping us. It sounds great, and everyone appreciates it. Everyone around you, especially. <laughs> oh man! And, and then they're just like, yeah. I think my favorite Laura Lee ism is when the 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 asshole in the crowd shouts "Free Bird," and Laura Lee basically <laughs> like everything goes silent. Like the house lights come on, she looks at the person, and she's like, yeah. <laughs> We've never heard that before, you asshole. Like, it's just the greatest call out ever. Oh, like, yeah, you're awesome. really, really funny. Oh, my God. That's the first time anyone's ever said that. The first so. time anyone's. What does this just say? Free free bird, like as in flying bird? That's funny. Check that one out. Or I aggressive. say, I, I also say, oh, I did. Oh, my God. I did it already. I did it twice in the first set. <laughs> I also twice. did Slayer. Me and Bob and McGee, Brown Eyed Girl, and every Pearl Jam song ever written. It was the most, it was the greatest set ever, and you missed and it. You, you got to get it, it earlier. Yeah. It could be the first song, and I still say it. Like, first song. I'm like, I did it last set. <laughs> I'm walking in with my guitar, and people are going, Freebird. You go, I just, I just played it last what set. What is wrong with people? You should, if you're, if, if you're into like vulgar comedy, anyone, check out, there's a Bill Hicks. Have, you, have any of you seen this? The com- comedian Bill Hicks. He he was kind of semi popular in like the early '90s or or something, but he there's a video of him. It's super grainy at some like tiny stand up club, and some guy keeps yelling "Freebird," and he just goes on the most epic. He goes on like a 12 minute rant. He's like rolling around <laughs> on the ground. He's so mad because. And then after he's done, the guy yells it again, and he's just like, "Oh my god." <laughs> Of course, but the best is like they'll they'll scream like Slayer, and then like we'll play like I'll play Randy Blood, or I'll do like the the uh, you know South of Heaven riff or something, and then they're like Slayer, and I'm like I just we just, we just like they don't even it. know you don't know they don't even know it that's or or play play Tom Petty, so we play a Tom Petty song, and they're like no Tom Petty, they mean American Girl, <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah, but they don't yeah 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 <laughs> no the Tom Petty one at the ball in Cork we had a guy with a with a with a phone, right? He had up. Oh, it, it had like the banner it was like Sublime, Sublime. So we played Sanria, and he kept it up. And we played What I Got, and he kept up. He's going Sublime, and I'm like, we literally just we are playing. So this this is Sublime. Be more specific. It's like playing Sublime. I was envisioning like some drunk uncle when you're playing at a wedding, and they come up and they request Slayer, and you're like, okay, and you do it and just destroy yep. the place. Is that a common? Re- I I didn't know that people would ask for Slayer or because they're playing Stump the Chick with the guitar. That's the game that people love to play. Uh. They come in and they go, "Oh, do you know Dave Matthews?" Or like something like they think I wouldn't know, and then I do it, and then they're like, "Oh, I meant like Slayer. the other Dave Matthews." Stuff. I meant like the, <laughs> yes. the deep cuts. Slayer. 
<laughs> you suck. <laughs> or, or maybe my version is so unrecognizable. It could be that too. <laughs> I think I'm so smart. I'm like, I played it. They're like, no, you, you really didn't. It might've been some of the lyrics, but you didn't play it. And I didn't. That's just next level trolling. <laughs> that's all it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. We're going to keep moving along here. Uh, the next song on our focus list is called Soul Serenade. Only you. Can heal my soul. Holy crap, that intro is so sexy. Oh my God. Her voice, like, ah, her vibrato, everything is just perfect. Sorry, I'm fanboying out here, but my God. Yeah, this sounds like the sort of song you like do your first dance to at a wedding or something. Has a nice, like, slow to fast transition. Yeah. Like, it doesn't even matter what she's saying. (laughs) it's perfect she nails it you know like the sentiment is well this was originally an instrumental at least from what i could i could glean from uh some of the the stuff online by a guy named a sax player named king curtis and he released the instrumental in 1964 so i don't know if she just added lyrics well, he, or, he's the, isn't King Curtis, he plays sax on this album a little bit, right? Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I feel like the, it's funny. The note I had for this was the, I mean, the backing music is really outstanding, but I, I do feel like if this was just any old singer, the song would feel a little bit sort of standard, but I think she like elevates it to a place that, you know, again, like I, a few singers actually could. She made it an Aretha song. Totally. Yeah. It's um yeah, it's just it's great. I, I don't don't normally vibe with with songs like this, but yeah, I mean, it's just gorgeous. But but if you were to hold a gun to my head and tell me to pick the low point on the album, despite the intro, this is actually the tune. And my my small complaint here is that it's very repetitive, just kind of does the same thing over and over and over again, which is maybe what happens when you take an instrumental song and put lyrics over it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's it, it does kind of get a little bit repetitive. Yeah, I hear that. There is this change that happens, though, and it only happens once. And having listened to the song once, every time I hear this now, I'm waiting for this change that comes at the 2 minute and 12 mark, and we'll play it here. That little turnaround might be the ultimate tension and release, which is like, I have to wait two and a half minutes of this same thing happening. It's minor 
the whole time. And then it goes major and the sun shines for these brief <laughs> five seconds. And I'm like, oh God, there it is. Thank well, you. Well, the restraint to stay, <sighs> to go back, like the restraint to not just like settle into that. Stay on it, right? Is uh, impressive. Yeah, it's funny. It was so brief that I, I don't even, I, it didn't even like register when I was listening to it. <laughs> Great, so let's uh, let's move on. This is Dr. Feelgood. Next tune on our list. I don't want nobody Always Sitting around Me and my man What if you can medley over that? Well, I tell Jimmy Sickhead Hood, he used to have wood. Do people ever ask you, Laura Lee, to play um, Dr. Feelgood, the Motley Crue version? <laughs> and you do. This is my Sarah Proudly. Seriously, please learn this. Uh, but that's what that must be where they got the the term from, though, right? Or is that like, was that a, was that like a known term or did she coin that too? Like, much like props, proppers. I think that was your drug dealer back in the kind of your code for for your drug dealer back in the fifties and sixties. Even way family. back then, yeah, yeah. Okay. But in this case, yeah, she's not talking about drugs. Yeah, Aretha can't wait for people to leave her house so she and her husband can get it on. <laughs> and this, yeah. which her husband wrote their lyrics too. <laughs> well, I saw this yeah. was one of her originals one of like maybe four or five originals that she has on the album. Um, lyrics the, by Ted White. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. That's not true. Oh, okay. Not true. All right. <laughs> and I swear he doesn't rough me up. And he's really sexy and a nice guy and a good dad. Wait, what? And he never leaves his <laughs> hair shavings in the sink. <laughs> <laughs> <There's>... <laughs> Aretha did play piano on this, which is 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 pretty badass. And uh, Alan, you were saying like I I didn't know how great she actually was. I mean, she sounds like a just any old jazz keyboard player just mm-hmm. up in the chords, like any old jazz keyboard player, yeah. right? Like, she sounds great, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. You know what she does, and I totally took this from her with her piano playing. I love those those crescendo stops, like, din and din. Uh huh. Like right. I, lo- oh, I love that. I do that in almost every one of my originals. I stole, totally stole that from her. And yes. it's not the style at all. I don't, I don't write like any type of Aretha Franklin style. But a lot of my songs okay, so have you that. You a lot of blues and gospel stuff. No, but a lot of my songs have that element because that just I, that always grabs me every time. I love that. She has cool chord voicings too. Like I never really thought about her as the keyboard player, but like. There is a sound to the chords, like the notes are sort of arranged a certain way relative to each other, especially on like dominant seventh chords, right? And it is interesting to think about like, that's just the way Aretha Franklin plays the five chord, right? Uh, but it is, <laughs> like it really is, you know? So it's interesting, right? So, yeah. I want to quickly drop in one of her live performances of this song. And uh, we're not looking at the video, but... You can just tell she's a badass because she's not looking at the keyboard. She's looking at the crowd while she plays this. Yeah, 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 yeah
I mean, just just doing that and having feel, you know, it's just well, that's what you get when you you start playing piano at four years old. Well, you you can tell that like she knows that when she opens her mouth, it will sound glorious. Like you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like there she has total confidence, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I, I wonder what that's like. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> I definitely think it's more than having been playing since she was four, because I've been playing since I was three, and I still sound like I'm three. <laughs> <laughs> There's something special about her. So both her sisters. Irma and Carolyn did did backups on this and also were were interviewed for that album or for the book. And they also recognized there was just something about her. You know, they they made reference also to like the Jackson family. Like Janet could sing, Tito could sing, like that whole family could sing. But man, there was something special about Michael. And it's the same thing with the Franklins, man. There was something special about Aretha. I didn't realize her sister sang backup. There's one song in particular. Maybe it's the first one, Never Loved a Man, where there's like there's like a real sultry moment. It's like a real mellow two-part. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do, yeah. And I wondered, like, oh, is this an overdub? Like, is it sounds, but it must be her sister. I think it's overdubbed Aretha twice. It is. Oh, you think it is an overdub? Yeah, okay. I, I think those lead lines yeah, were all Yeah, it sounded Aretha. so, like, it just so tight. You know, yeah. but but again, it's like it's 1964, right? So they they're not like the 67 the, rather 67. Yeah, okay, good call. But still, they're still not they're still making records like more organically than like you know, right? The digital grid these days. We're gonna move on here to our last tune on our focus list. This one is called "Do Right Woman, Do Right Man." Take me to heart. I'll always love you And nobody Can make me do wrong Take me for granted Leaving love unsure Makes willpower Oh, that vibrato. <laughs> I love this song. Even her pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like the way she says the words is like, it's just fantastic. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like this, this song, it took me a few spins to really feel it. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's great out the door, like obviously, but it took a good, like four or five listens to just be like, Oh yeah, I'm like really settling into this. And yeah, it's just, it's just great. She's great. So this was one of the most egregious tuning moments, uh, Larley that you had mentioned. So I will, I'll spin that now. There's like a moment at the two seventeen where I think the, uh-huh. the piano is a little funky. Yeah, it's flat. Like, yeah, it's just a, a function of pick the thing you want to tune to, right? Like the organ's not going to change. Yeah, <laughs> right. The, the the Wurlitzer, you know, you're not going to raise that by a couple cents because you got to solder stuff in right. there and do all kinds of crazy shit. So unless you're <laughs> going to tune the piano up to match the organ or the 
the roads or the world, sir, you're going to get some of that sourness in there. But that, yeah, that that was like my my one complaint in terms of uh, the tuning stuff. There are quite a few songs that are in there. I, I want you back. It, it, Michael Jackson's like, ooh, ooh, baby. And he's like flat on it. And I'll always, no, not always. I want to dance with somebody. Um, there's, I can't remember the part, but she's, oh, but the love that part. She says, love. She goes flat. I said, how do they not <laughs> hear that? It hurts me. And I'm not saying that like they're like not good or anything. I'm just, I'm sure that they, they heard it and left it on purpose. Right. Quality control. Like you said earlier, Phil, maybe they left it in there on purpose. Like they, yeah, that went a little out, but like, I like it. There's flavor there. Like maybe like, but someone like me who just like, you know, can feel, yeah, music, like, like, I can feel yeah. tunes in my mouth. Like it, uh, I'm like, how can I? So yeah, you're right, Adam. It, it, it goes way out right there. There's another, there's another Aretha song and it's interesting. I, I don't know. Maybe they just didn't give a shit. I don't know. But uh, if you listen to Chain of Fools, um, yeah, it's not. It, yeah, it's that guitar, and man, that oh, the guitar. Real. Oh, I'm thinking the horns in respect. Oh, the horns yeah, in respect yeah. are out too. But it's crazy. But but like again, like I've I feel like I've recorded things that like I look at it in a machine, and the machine's like, "Nah, you're good." And I listen to it, I'm like, "Oh, but it sounds like shit," you know. And then this, yeah. one, I listen to it, I'm like, "I know that's out of tune." Sounds fucking great. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Like, I just don't know. I don't know how that works at all. So <laughs> it's weird because out of tune live equals disastrous. And then out of tune in the studio is like, that's flavor, man. We did it for that. Studio magic. <laughs> you know, like, well, Larley, I'm happy to have finally have somebody on the podcast who can uh, sympathize with my, my, uh, the same jaw thing. I routinely get so made weird. fun of on this podcast for overanalyzing the, uh, the, the pitchiness of things. So thank you for validating. <laughs> All right. So there we go. That, that's going to round out our list. So shortly after this album was released, she'll be crowned the queen of soul. And uh, that moniker stuck around for the rest of her life. She released nearly 30 more studio albums. She died in 2018 at the age of 76. So what we do now at the end of the podcast here is we work our way around the room and get our final votes on whether or not you think this deserves to be on the list. So let's throw it over to Laura Lee first. Um, I know there's no such number, but a thousand percent. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Boosh. Phil. Yeah, this is an easy yes. Um, I, I think this is probably one of the most sort of just enjoyable listens so far uh, on the podcast. Alan. Now, you know, this This kind of sucked if you think of it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be an ultimate <laughs> heel turn. Um, now, of course, I mean, if when I think of what does like soul music sounds like sound like, like it just sounds like this. It sounds like everything on this record. And I'll kind of steal a quote that I saw from Alicia Keys about this album and Aretha, which was a human being without an Aretha Franklin album is only half a person. And this is the one to have. <laughs> so there you have it. I don't own this. I'll give so, her that. Yeah. Um, what does that say about me? I'll tell you what, though, just real quickly, I have to say, like, as a person who has made music their entire life, like, this is what I do. I have been a musician my entire adult life. I don't, like, work like another. This is what I do. And 
having listened to that album changed me. Like it changed the way I listened to other records. It changed the way I wrote music. It's changed the way I learned music. Like, and I used to listen, I was, you know, this Patsy Klein. I'm trying to think in my formative years, uh, Tori Amos. It's eclectic, it's eclectic, but, um, you know, this was up there in like the top two records that changed music for me, Cha like changed the way I did everything, the way I thought about everything. Um, not just her voice, but, you know, I having been, you know, someone who played music since they were three, I was aware, even at a really young age, of the musicality of the, you know, of the band and, and the way, like I was talking about the crazy time signatures. I was aware of that stuff at a young age. And like I said, it changed me. Like, in every way. So yes, absolutely. Before, if I hadn't heard this record before I died, um, I wouldn't be the same person or musician that I am. Today. I'm going to echo that as well and just say yes. All right. So Aretha, congratulations. You're on the list. Uh, I do want to thank Laura Lee before we're, we get to picking next week's album. We're going to let Laura Lee go. We thank you so much for hanging out with us. Laura Lee, where can people find you? Yeah. So you can find me. Um, you can find my originals on Spotify, Apple, Pandora, all that stuff at Laura Lee, L-A-U-R-A-L-E-A, -E one word, Tarakus, T-A-R-A-S-K-U-S, uh, three words, Tar, ask us. <laughs> uh, and you can find my originals there. And then my band, um, you know, we, we're, we're at venues all over, up and down the East Coast. We go up from Vermont down to Key West, um, bars, venues, festivals, weddings, corporate events. And uh, you can check us out at Trip Fabulous. That's T. R-I-P-P, -P, like take a trip with two peas. Fabulous, like fabulous. Tripfabulous.com. Thank you so much, guys. Awesome. We'll we'll link all of that in the uh in the the liner notes here on the episode. Laura Lee, again, thank you so much for your time. And we'll catch you around. All right, gentlemen, we are going to uh pick next week's album. I have the keys to the albinator here. So we're gonna give that thing a quick spin. All right, next week's album is uh, somebody I've literally never listened to and I've only seen them being made fun of on SNL. It's Bjork, and the album is Debut. Oh my which, God, for God, real. I hope it's not her debut album because that would make me love her immediately. <laughs> if it's like her fifth album, that would be oh, the funniest man. thing in the world. Whoa, okay. This record. Going from one, one powerhouse to another. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah. One vocal legend to the next. I remember listening to this record not long after, I don't know, maybe about nine years ago and thinking, man, if this came out today, this would be cutting edge. <laughs> now that was nine years ago, but it was still <laughs> 20 years after it came out. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to listening to it. Awesome. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. You have your homework assignment for next week. It is the album debut by Bjork. That's going to do it for us today uh, for 1001 Album Complaints. I'm Adam. I'm Alan. And I'm Phil. Boosh. Boosh.